Hi, this is David Mack, and you're listening to the FSF Popcast. Welcome to the FSF Popcast. We were going to write the intro for today's guest, but instead, Tim decided just to use the bio intro from his website. Because what's a little plagiarism between friends? So our guest... (laughs) Our guest is the New York Times best-selling author of 38 novels of science fiction, fantasy, and adventure. His writing credits span several media, including television for episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, games, and comic books. He has worked as a consultant for Star Trek Prodigy, and in June of 2022, the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers honored him as a Grandmaster with its Faust Award. Welcome to the show, David Mack. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We are so glad you could be here. And I, as we said before, it's a little weird. Usually Tim does all of that, and I'm a little out of breath now. I don't know how he does that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, a, that's a lot of words. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, a lot of words. Hard. Words are hard. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess the the arrival of your first grandson is a reason to miss the show so we we'll, do send we'll our congratulations to Tim's family on the healthy arrival of the little one, which is mm-hmm. not so little. He's a grandpappy now. I know. I know. When he messaged us today, though, his his grandson is 10 pounds. That's not a little baby. <laughs> no, that's a full-size regulation bowling ball. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a sack of potatoes right there. Yeah. But yes, we, oh. as the FSF podcast, again... I want to send our congratulations to to Tim's family, even though it took Tim away from us. And now, who will I pick on? Oh, look! Hi, hello. <laughs> so, David, out of your thirty-eight published novels, um, there's the soon-to-be-released Star Trek Firewall. We mm-hmm. are so grateful for the copy that you sent us to preview as well. That was amazing. But wondering, we're wondering if you could tell our listeners about the book and when they can get their hands on a copy of it. Well, Firewall is a Star Trek Picard novel. It's a prequel. It is scheduled to come out on Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Depending on when this goes live into the world, the book may or may not already be out. And it's not technically embargoed, so if you're looking for it at your local bookstore, some bookstores might actually shelve it a little bit early. So it might be worthwhile if you're really you know, hankering for it Go check your local uh, Barnes & Noble or your local independent bookstore and see if they've already got a copy on the shelf. If you're ordering online or if you've had it pre-ordered in any format, then that will drop or be delivered on the 27th or shortly thereafter. I'm very excited for it because, unfortunately, I don't live in the same state as everyone else, so I don't have the copy of the book. But my wife works at a bookstore, and they just got the shipment of it like maybe two days ago. Ooh. they're not going to shelve it until like the week it comes out. But I'm just sitting there like I'm waiting. It's it's can sitting I just, there. Can I just they got their copies before I got my author copies. I still don't have copies of it. Which is hilarious <laughs> because Ben's in Alaska and they barely ever get anything on time up there. <laughs> and I yeah, there's no... You think it would be easy to get me copies. But no. no. Think. Oh, yeah, there's no two-day Amazon delivery in Alaska, it's more like two and a half weeks. I was so. going to say, your prime delivery, you get to get it in two weeks instead of three. So you said that this is a Star Trek Picard novel and that it's a prequel. 
Yeah, it uh, is set shortly after the end of the Star Trek Voyager TV series. So it takes place about 20 years, give or take, before the first season of Star Trek Picard. Star Trek Picard started in 2399 in the first season, and it went into about 2401 or later in the third season. So this story, Voyager comes home in 2378, and over the course of about two years uh, after getting home, the Voyager crew scatters to new opportunities. Uh, you know, Tom and Balana have their kids, so they go off to start their family. Harry gets a new posting. Tuvok goes to Starfleet Command Security Division. Janeway becomes an admiral. The doctor goes off on his speaking tour, you know, advocating for holographic sentient rights. Uh, Chakotay gets promoted, according to Star Trek Prodigy, uh, to command of the Protostar Project, the USS Protostar. So he's, you know, involved in this top secret project. Everybody's got this cool stuff going on, except Seven of Nine. Here she is. She's been promised, you know, a, a new life in the Federation after the ship gets home. And instead, the found family she's relied on is gone. The only person who's really still around is Janeway. And suddenly, Seven is finding she's actually not welcome here, this place that she doesn't really know. She's never really been to Earth, not that she remembers. She's not familiar with the Federation in terms of living in it. And she finds that they don't trust her, that you know, this is only about five years after the events of Star Trek First Contact, when a Borg mm. cube basically walked right up to Earth's doorstep and nearly destroyed the planet. Right. The people are a little edgy. They're a little mm -hmm. wary of the Borg. Uh, and they haven't really, up to this point, ever dealt with an ex-Borg who has been emancipated after a prolonged period of assimilation. Sure, they know about Picard, but Picard was assimilated for a matter of hours. Seven of Nine was assimilated for over 18 years. So they're very wary of her. She's still got permanent Borg implants that can't be removed. Uh, they're a permanent part of her. She still has Borg nanoprobes in her blood. And so people, when they see her, she's visibly different. It's very obvious who and what she is. And they're afraid of her. Uh, and as a result, she faces persecution bigotry, uh, fear, you know, uh, as we see early in the book, she's living in a, you know, a house on a beach down outside Cape Town, South Africa. And one day she gets up to find her house has been graffitied with die Borg bitch, oh. uh, you know, hate, hate graffiti on the side of her house. This is what cues her into the fact that earth is not going to be the place where she's going to make a new life. She is not welcome here. And so she, tells herself that, you know, after all the efforts to get her into Starfleet that have been refused and the efforts to get her Federation citizenship, which have been denied, that she doesn't want Janeway to keep going out on a limb for her. She says she's worried about, you know, hurting Janeway's career prospects or hurting Janeway's reputation. But actually, that's a cover for the fact that Seven feels humiliated. She feels uh, persecuted. She feels embarrassed. Uh, and so she, and she's angry. She's angry as hell. And she just wants out of there. And so Firewall is a classic coming of age story. What in literary terms would be called a Bildungsroman about her need to basically cut the apron strings that connect her to Janeway, go out into the galaxy for a long overdue journey of self-discovery to figure out who she is, what she wants out of life, who and what she wants to be, where she wants to do that. Uh, and basically, you know, find her way to independence. 
which is what the coming-of-age story is all about. And so she has to go out into the galaxy, uh, and suddenly she finds that, you know, she's been deprived of all of the things we take for granted. The Borg stole her childhood, her adolescence, and her young adulthood. She's had four years of some socialization by the Voyager crew before coming back, but that's really just sort of barely scraping the surface. She has been deprived of all the things that we take for granted, like learning how to socialize, learning how to date, uh, you know, learning to navigate social situations. And suddenly she's also discovering, you know, she's come from this very cis-heteronormative sort of, you know, uh, period of uh, acclimation to humanity aboard Voyager. But she's finding she's, on some level, she's queer. She's at the very least bisexual. And she's got to figure this out for herself without the guidance and the support of the network that she took for granted. So she's trying to figure out this aspect of herself on her own. And she's got nobody to talk to about it and nobody to help her through it. And so this is a story about Seven going out into the galaxy, finding herself finding the truth of who and what she is. And along the way, she finds the Fenris Rangers. And in, the, in that, finds a newfound family, uh, sort of echoing the one she used to have. And in the course of doing that, she finds the first great love of her life, a woman named Ellery Cade. I love it. I, mean, I, I was excited. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I, I was excited about it before. I'm so much more excited about it now. Yeah. <laughs> You can you can read the preview and you can read the little blurb on the back, but there's something so much better about like hearing from the author's mouth the this is what you can expect from this book. And it's like you can feel the passion in it a little more of the hey, this is what I wrote. This is what I'm excited about. And yeah. I feel like that hit a little harder than just the the blurb you get on Amazon. But I'm really yeah, 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 the back cover blurb was one we chose because it kind of captured the the feeling of ennui uh, of of loneliness, of isolation that Seven is grappling with at the beginning of the story. But really, throughout the book, there's a high level of action-adventure. Uh, there are a number of big action set pieces. Uh, and what's really important is that they are about putting Seven through a journey where she has to realize that solutions to problems out here in the rough-and-tumble frontier edge of Federation space are not always as cut and dry and black and white as they seemed when she was on Voyager. Things that would normally have been resolved, you know, with a, a decisive action by Voyager, she finds out, out here, you're dealing with people who play by a different rule book or no rule book. You're dealing with sociopaths, you're dealing with warlords, people for whom the only real law is vengeance. And you can't deal with these people the way you would have dealt with problems in Starfleet. So she's she's basically losing her illusions. She's losing that sense of innocence. And she's beginning to see some of the ugliness that happens out in the universe when you leave the comfortable space of the Federation. It, it really does sound like, as you said, a coming-of-age story. I mean, mm -hmm. Seven of Nine is fully grown up, but this sounds like you replace this with a teenager fresh out of school going off like leaving their parents house you, you could have the same story mm -hmm. yeah you can imagine she's you know, a 17 year old i mean she's physically 32 years old uh when we sort of join that part of her story where she's leaving home physically yeah she's 32 but she might as well be an adolescent i mean 
she's had, like I said, four years uh, to be socialized by the Voyager crew. But that kind of just barely gets her to the point where she can interact on some sort of normal level with other sentient beings uh, without offending everybody she meets or, you know, killing everybody she meets. That's a base level of socialization. That's mm-hmm. now you've got to deal with, you know, how do you find a place to live when you've never done it before? How do you find a job when you've never had to go find a job before? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do you protect your identity when you realize that people figure out who and what you are, you could be subject to all kinds of violence. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the themes that run through the book, you know, things that she has to suddenly worry about, like she, she realizes like at one point, you know, she's on this planet, a mining planet called, uh, I believe it's Syrah, and she's staying in a city called Starheim. She realizes anybody she meets probably one-on-one, she could win just about any fight. But if she has to face an angry mob, she's dead. So mm-hmm. she knows this is not a place to draw attention. She mm-hmm. keeps her head down. She stays anonymous at work. She stays out of arguments. She doesn't voice opinions about things. She just stays you know, uh, on the liminal edge of society, uh, mostly for a sense of self-preservation. And a lot of the themes that run through the book are those that are drawn from, you know, the, pers- the perspective of being uh, the outcast, the outsider. Uh, there, there's themes about queerness and trans identity that also go through the book in that Seven is has become, thanks to Picard, uh, but it, this was true even before that, she has been an icon for the LGBTQ community of Star Trek fans. Mm-hmm. And she represents, you know, uh, someone who goes through a transitional identity. Uh, she doesn't like being dead named as Annika. That is one of her pet peeves. Uh, so there's, you know, an allegory for the trans experience uh, in that part of her, her daily life. And the fact that she is visibly different, that she has to deal with the fact that people can look at her and realize, you know, she is not run-of-the-mill human being or, or whatever, humanoid, that she's got Borg implants and she can be immediately identified as different, that's, again, part of the queer and trans uh, identity issue is that, you know, it, it makes for a very small, very vulnerable minority, and she's keenly aware uh, of the fact that she has become a minority of one and therefore is in danger. So these themes go through the book, um, and it was very important to me that they be treated seriously uh, because they are serious issues, particularly in the world we live in today. That's a lot. That's just like my brain took a minute with the processing. But a lot happened. is going on in this book. I, I won't lie to you. It's, it's dealing with social issues. It's dealing with issues about queerness and transness. It's also just dealing with the general feeling of being the outsider, being the outcast. Uh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of that is just about finding the uh, the commonality of human experience, uh, you know, the, the sort of romantic subplot that brings her to, uh, you know, basically form a relationship with Ellery Cade. A lot of that is about Seven pushing past her own fear of vulnerability. Um, but it's something I think we all identify with, you know, that moment when, you know, the first time you really fall for somebody and... You're got, you've got to take a chance. At some point, you've got to put yourself out there and risk getting shot down mm-hmm. uh, if you're wrong. And that's a terrifying thing, especially if you've never done it before. Yeah. And so this is you know the sort of thing Seven is dealing with. She's, she's trying to figure out how to navigate these waters. At one point, it's described in the text as 
she's watching basically people flirt while she's out at a dance club, a, a music club. And she realizes it's as if everybody else is speaking a language that she has never been taught. And she's trying to pick it up from context, but she can't. So that, that's, that's uh, again, the sort of thing that's going on here. I mean, with what you're describing, that's also very reminiscent of like neurodivergent people. Yes. Like that is also part I, of it. Yeah, I, I have ADHD and I'm also on the spectrum as well. I completely understand the fact that everyone is speaking a language you don't, yeah. you like, you either can't hear or just don't physically understand it. Yeah, so or, you don't get the, or you don't get the, the subtle cues, the, the nonverbal mm -hmm. cues. Mm -hmm. You're hearing the words, but you're not understanding the nonverbal part of it. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I grew up with OCD and uh, also a disorder called TTM, trichotillomania, which was compulsive hair pulling. I used to destroy my beard when I was younger. Uh, is that so what that is? TTM is, yeah, it's compulsive I... hair pulling. In men, it tends to manifest with the pulling of facial hair or from the top of the head. Uh, women more frequently pull the top right of the head, here. the eyebrows, or the eyelashes. Uh, some people pull body hair. Um, it manifests more often in women than in men. We're off topic here, but you now this happens. Uh, hey, that's fine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sometimes referred to colloquially among those who have the condition as TRICO. Uh, it's also known by the acronym TTM, trichotillomania. Trico meaning mm. hair, tilo meaning pull, mania meaning an uncontrollable desire or action. You're aware you're doing it. You don't want to be doing it, but your body does it anyway. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I believe me, I have lived through neurodivergence, having to deal with that, having to deal with the fact that I have OCD tendencies, uh, definitely somewhere on the spectrum myself. I've had to learn socialization the hard way. And I spent my youth basically being the favorite target of bullies. I was the one who could count on getting my ass kicked uh, pretty reliably at school. And, you know, through middle school and high school, if I wasn't getting my ass kicked, I was getting my personal belongings vandalized or getting mm -hmm. my car emptied, or, you know, my parents would find that their house had been egged and I would know it's because the bullies were basically sending me a message. Uh, so, I mean, I grew up knowing what it is to be scared when you leave your house, knowing what it is to know that you are not welcome where you are. Uh, mm -hmm. And I brought that sense of understanding the fear, the vulnerability, uh, the sense of being the target to uh, writing those scenes from Seven's point of view. I feel like that's definitely the, the development of Seven's character that we need, though. We need to see that that part of her so much more. Because like you said, she's she's been an icon for the LGBTQ community for years. And then to to get more of her backstory, get more of her her personal development, I feel like that's going to be huge. For, for the community. I hope so. And I hope that uh, members of the LGBTQ uh, Star Trek fan community who pick up this book feel that I've done her character justice uh, and have shown them the respect they deserve uh, just as human beings uh, and that I've yeah. done justice to their experience. Yeah. Well, I look forward I'm to sure reading, it, to reading yeah. all of it. <laughs> I'm sure you've done a wonderful job, but only one way to tell, and that's to find it in your local bookstore. February 27th. Or, or just sneak a copy of book from, from Mimi. Yeah. Right <laughs> hey, could I go into the back room real quick? <laughs> just sit there with the book. All right. Well, we do have other questions. Uh, yeah, that was just question one. 
Hey, and look at we, we used half the show. I told you, long answers, my specialty. Hey, we're we're fine at long answers. That was all beautiful stuff. Uh, but here we go. The majority of your writing career has been centered around Star Trek, with some ventures into Farscape and X Men and a couple other things. Mm-hmm. What is it about Star Trek that keeps bringing you back? What what attracts you into Star Trek? Well, Star Trek was my first fandom love. Uh, it's what I imprinted on as a kid. It was the first major science fiction franchise that I was aware of as a child. I grew up watching the reruns, the syndicated reruns of the original series in the early 1970s. So I must have seen every original series episode 10 or 20 times by the time Star Trek The Motion Picture came out in 79, which for me at the age of 10 was a huge deal. I love that. And I had the the cutaway poster of the refit enterprise from the motion picture where they show you all the interior decks and where all the stuff is. And it's all got like a legend. Uh, I had that poster and I love that poster. And I studied it to the point where by like, you know, the age of 11, I could mentally in my imagination move through the interior of the starship enterprise and know where I was and orient myself. and know like, you know, engineering is that way. The warp core is there. Uh, the energy goes through here, goes this way up into the nacelles. Bridge is here, sick bay is here, main computer is here. And it became real to me. And so my imagination has been living, at least partly in the Star Trek universe, literally my whole life. Uh, I've grown up with Star Trek uh, since the very beginning. Um, and as far as my writing career, my writing career, I pretty much owe it to Star Trek. My first professional writing credit in fiction was on television for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That was where my writing career, you know, in terms of anything other than, say, magazine work, nonfiction articles, which I had written before. Um, But in terms of fiction, I started with Star Trek. And what I love about Star Trek is that it is a vision of a future we could build if we have the courage to do so, if we are willing as a species to put aside uh, petty hatreds, if we're willing to put aside uh, irrational beliefs and instead choose reason, choose compassion, uh, and, and choose, you know, basically this better future, we can have it, but you got to work for it. And I appreciate that vision that says tomorrow can be better than today if we are willing to say it's better to create than to destroy, it's better to heal than to harm, peace is better than conflict. Uh, we should strive for understanding. We should celebrate uh, the differences as long as those differences respect one another. Um, we should be able to find a way forward uh, in peace as one species of human beings, basically brothers and sisters all. Uh, and I love that vision of the future. Um, it saddens me that it still seems so very far away. But what I think is important about Trek is that it stands there as a beacon. It stands there as an example to say, we can choose this. We haven't done it yet, but it's still here. This is the dream. It gives us something to aspire to, to a world and a future and a vision of humanity that's better than the one we have. That is so, sorry, literally just the whole thing you said was just perfect. Thank you. Because that's, that is the epitome of Star Trek. My my Star Trek growing up was Voyager. And I have 
the uh, informational booklet of Star Trek Voyager. And when you were talking about going through the poster and finding all the things, same thing. I've poured through those pages, God, maybe a hundred times or more. Like I could map in my brain. It's been a while since I've read it, but I could probably, if I focus, I could probably map from like the bridge to the hollow deck down to sick bay and just ping pong through the, the floor. And I could do that with the enterprise D as well as with the original, you know, movie era enterprise. And I think on some level, it must be that I would have given anything to have lived on the enterprise rather than in the world that I did. I would much rather have gotten up every day to find myself on the enterprise than having to go to my high school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was where I wanted to be. That was, you know, it was one of those things where I had to uh, get out of the small town I grew up in and go to New York City when I was 18 to attend film school. And it wasn't until I got to New York City that I really feel like I became the me I wanted to be, that I was the person that I wanted to be. And I came here without the baggage I'd grown up with. So, you know, the reputation that I'd had there did not follow me here. And I was able to start fresh with a clean slate. And I became the person I I wanted to be. And I feel like Seven uh, is on a similar journey. And maybe I drew part of that inspiration from that in that she cannot be the person she wants to be if she stays on Earth. Mm. Uh, The persecution she faces there, the baggage of her background is always going to taint her interactions with everybody around her, which is why she needs to get out. She needs to go to a place where she isn't known, where maybe people don't as quickly recognize what her implants mean. She needs to find that space where she can be herself and be judged on the content of her character and not the you know content of her implants right there is something to be said about a fresh start a clean slate sometimes you just you just need to move and and get away from the people who know everything about you yeah yeah that uh, is definitely the case yeah i know when when my husband and i got married i moved across state and i mean it's michigan it's not like it's the bit that big of a state it's a three-hour drive from where i grew up But there was something, even just in that three hours, that is so freeing of the, these are not the people that have known me since my parents brought me home from the hospital. These are the people who met me when my husband introduced us six months ago. Like, (laughs) this is so much better. Yeah. Not that I don't love the cross state. It's just, sometimes there's, it's it's nice to not have everybody know everything. Yeah. Same thing with with me. I'm actually from New York. I'm from Long Island. Now I'm in Alaska. So that's a change. Vastly different, by way different of vibe. <laughs> yeah, by right. way of floor, it gets real confusing. But being somewhere where no one knows any like preconceived notions about me, it's okay. freeing. It's very freeing. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I think that's going to come across very interestingly in in Firewall. Just seeing Seven of Nine's journey in that as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can tell that there's a feeling of relief that comes through the moment she starts dealing with people who aren't reflexively pulling away from her. The moment she starts dealing with people who, you know, like the Fenris Rangers are this weird motley bunch uh, who are basically going to take anybody who signs up. They need all the help they can get. They need every 
qualified, skilled hand they can get uh, in their mission. And they're basically not going to judge her based on what she looks like or her implants. Not even, not everybody even really recognizes what those implants are yet. Because again, ex-Borg are not a common thing yet in this, right. well, at this point in Star Trek continuity. So she's able to find herself a new safe place, a new place to be integrated into and accepted. Uh, and then even once people begin to realize what she is, by that point, she's already won them over. Just in my mind, the people who don't know like that Seven is an ex-Borg, I mean, look at people like Jordy. They have implants. They have crazy yeah. tech and things like that built in. Yeah. I mean, if, I mean, if I was in that scenario, I I mean, I if I didn't know that they were Borg, I, I would think, oh, they have something wrong with their eyes. Yeah, or in, with Seven and her implant, you would just think, Oh, she's got some sort of weird medical implant for neurological reasons. Yeah, exactly. Aside from that, there's not much visibly different about her. At least not until you, you know, wear off some of her outer skin and you find out there's this black and silver layer of mm -hmm. Borg synthetic tissue underneath the surface that makes her extremely tough. Uh, but yeah. if you don't see that, if you don't see her when she's, you know, seriously injured, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. So we've had a chance to talk to a few authors in a few different universes, and we've actually enjoyed asking them the question about, do you find writing in these these pre-existing universes, because you're writing for Star Trek, that, that universe yeah. has been around for a while, do you find writing for this pre-existing universe to be freeing or limiting as you're, with your creativity as an author? It's actually very freeing. It's... Uh... The more developed a fictional shared universe becomes, such as Star Trek, over the course of the last, what is it, 55? We're coming up on 60 years pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, the more you establish about the universe, the more dramatic questions it raises. For instance, you establish, for every fact you establish, there becomes a question of, well, then what if? Or, well, how did that happen? Or what was the outcome of that? And every one of these questions can become a springboard to a new story. And I find that the more developed the universe becomes, the more the relationships become entwined, the more you begin to realize the interactions between characters, the backstories that, you know, lace together and form this, this tapestry of, of narrative, the more complex it becomes, the more possibilities you see in it. At least that's how it is for me. Uh, I don't find the wealth of continuity to be in any way an impediment to creativity. In many ways, I find it to be a spur to creativity. Uh, I find myself sometimes looking at things in continuity where you'd say, well, that seems like a contradiction. This seems to contradict that. How do you reconcile that? Well, the question, how do you reconcile these two things, again, can in and of itself be the springboard to a new story idea. An example of that is a book I wrote a number of years ago called uh, Zero Sum Game, part of the Star Trek Typhon Pact uh, miniseries of books. And it was intended to be an in-depth look at the Breen Confederacy. And one of the funny things about the Breen in canon, most of what's been established about the Breen was established on Deep Space Nine. There were some things we learned about them from TNG, mostly the fact that they existed. And then DS9 established a bunch of facts. Voyager established a few. The funny thing was, Apparently, nobody was checking anybody else's notes because a lot of the details they establish about the brain through the course 
of DS9 are contradictory. You would think, well, if this is true, then why this? This should contradict that. How can this and this both be true? And it really becomes baffling when you try to figure out how can all of this be true at the same time? And then I sat down with it and I realized that the key to understanding it was in the name of their political entity. They're a confederacy. That implies a bunch of independent states, independent political entities bound together, much like the Federation. They're in a confederation. They're like the Confederate States of America, where you have all these various polities that are part of the, you know, the, the grand whole, and they're all subsumed under this banner of Breen Confederacy. And that's when I realized Breen is not a species. Breen is a social construct. There is no species that is the Breen. The Breen are not a species. They're a society. They're a culture. And they comprise many different species, many different races from different worlds. And the reason the masks look so weird and have all these weird functions, you know, cooling packs and weird snouts and this strange vocalizer thing that seems to turn language into a bunch of machine noise, I realized I based them on the Kurt Vonnegut story, Harrison Bergeron. All these weird modifications are so that you don't understand. You, you have no clue who's under the mask. The snout is there to accommodate the, you know, the Fenrisal, who are basically wolf-like. But the cold packs are there for the ones who come, a different species, who come from a cold planet and need to stay refrigerated, et cetera, et cetera. All these features exist for the benefit of some member of the Confederacy. But every suit has the same setup, so that when you're dealing with other people in this official capacity— Nobody knows whose species is what, and everybody gets an abbreviated version of their name for work purposes, so you can't tell from the name who, who they are, where they're from. You can't tell from their outfit who they are, what species they are, where they're from, because it's supposed to be a meritocracy. Everybody is judged by their achievement, by their work performance, but it, is in, but it becomes this weird form of oppression in that in equalizing everybody, we've also stripped everybody of identity. We've reduced everybody to this homogenized social construct in the name of fairness uh, and equality and meritocracy. But at the same time, we have taken away everything that made all these people interesting. And so there's a whole subculture of Breen uh, who rebel, who won't wear the masks, who live underground. Uh, you know, so I, I developed this whole thing, and I realized that the way to make it all true was to say it is all true, just not all true for every single member. And that's an example where you'd say, you know, the continuity is so weird and complex and contradictory, doesn't that tie your hands? And instead, I turned it around. I said, actually, no, it suddenly becomes the justification for something brilliant, for something more complex and more weird than you could possibly have imagined. That is so cool. I did not anticipate getting intergalactic politics into <laughs> into this interview, but that is so awesome. This is what I do. That that, that is amazing. And this is why you do it so well. Yeah. Uh, it's I, probably because I love Trek and I love finding the possibilities. Wow. Well, well, that kind of leads into the next one. This is going to be very difficult of a question for you. 
Okay. Because you love Star Trek. You love writing everything about that. But if David Mack was not an author, what would you be doing? I'd probably be under a bridge in a refrigerator box, I guess. <laughs> I'm, not really, I'm not really suited to do anything else, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, I spent 17 years in the corporate sector, and it nearly broke me uh, emotionally. I, I can't go back to office work. Uh, I mean, I worked mostly in editorial. I was a magazine editor, newspaper editor, freelance writer. Uh, then I moved over to the Internet side of things. And the last eight years of my corporate life, I was the editor of SciFi.com from around 2000 to 2008. Um, and I just couldn't go back to it. Uh, once I became a full-time author working from home in 2008, that's it. I mean, I, I just can't go back. Uh, I'm not suited to do anything else. Um, I, I mean, I used to be a decent short order cook when I was young, but that is not a job to have at my age. I don't like being on my feet that long. I can't do eight, 10 hours on my feet in a restaurant kitchen. Uh, I'm not suited for that anymore. I like cooking, but not as a profession. It's, it's one of those things where, as I've gotten older, I've realized not everything you love doing needs to be monetized. Not every mm -hmm. hobby or interest needs to be a side hustle. Uh, I love cooking, and you know I, I enjoy doing it at home for my wife and making you know dishes for my friends and whatever. I don't want to go back to cooking professionally. I don't ever want to work mm -hmm. in a restaurant kitchen again. I don't want to do that. I, uh, my wife and I, as a hobby, sometimes when she's not working herself to death, uh, we like to make gelato at home. We bought an ice Ooh. cream maker and we're practicing with some recipes because we loved the gelato that we had when we visited Italy. And there's a couple of really good gelato places here in New York. So we decided to learn how to make gelato at home. And at one point, we'd come back from a vacation and uh, I was talking about, you know, there were gelato places down there, but they weren't what I was hoping for. I said, no, it almost makes me wish you know, we could just move down there. We could open a little gelato shop. You know, and I was dreaming up all the flavors of gelato that we would make and everything else. And then I stopped and I thought about it. And I was like, that's a lot of hard work. And suddenly you're trapped in the back of this gelato store making gelato 12, 14 hours a day. And you're paying for rent and you're paying for insurance and you got to deal with health inspectors and you got to source all your ingredients and materials and you're dealing constantly with cost overruns and then you got to hire employees and you got labor and you got to you got insurance and you got state laws and you got federal laws and I'm like no I don't want to <laughs> no I just want to make a nice thing of hazelnut gelato at home and eat it that's really all I want to do so you know, I, I'm just going to be happy, you know, I, I will cook a nice meal for my wife and my friends. We'll make some gelato and we'll share it with people who come over. But I don't need to make a side hustle of it. But the long version of this is I just I'm not suited to do anything else. This is all I'm really good at. So <laughs> if I wasn't doing this, uh, I, just, I can't imagine what else I would do with my time, where else I would go, what else I would do can't think of anything I, i'm not a good musician i love music can't play to save my life figure that out young i, I, I got lucky like every freshman film school i had a i had a guitar fortunately i figured out before the end of my freshman year that i was never going to be a great guitarist i might become <laughs> confident but i was never going to be great i might have been able to develop some skill with practice 
what I realized I didn't have was talent. I don't have musical talent and I can't sing. I can't hold a goddamn note and I can't find a key. You know, I'm useless for that. So I couldn't have been a musician as much as I wanted to be a rock star and, and, and play arena rock and, and put out power chords and hear the adulation of, of the audience. Uh, that was not in the cards. I'm not going to be a rock star. I'm not going to be a, a, a super chef. Um, you know, I, no, this is all I am. This is all I am. That's so valid and relatable. <laughs> I, it is definitely relatable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not suited to do anything else. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty detail-oriented, but I'm not good at math. I can't be an accountant. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, maybe I could manage something, but I wouldn't enjoy it. You know, mm. uh, I mean, I could be a good producer. I mean, I, I've produced short films. I'd be a good producer, but if I do it in TV, a TV producer is a writer. I mean, I could be a film producer, I guess, if I wasn't a writer. I could produce things instead of writing them. I'm good at that. I'm good at organizational details, running things. Being, you know, in charge of budgets, personnel, material, schedules. I can do that. If I had to do anything, I, maybe I would be a film producer or maybe I'd be a film editor. Those are the only other two possible professions that I can imagine my uh, particular skill set and my personality are suited for. So producer or film editor. Oh, there you go. So you, you touched on it a little bit that you did have a couple of things that you enjoy doing, but as a, as a group, we kind of realized that ever since 2020, the, mm -hmm. the year that wasn't, um, yeah. we've become more appreciative of the need for self-care and being present in the moment. So when Very you much. don't have your next project on your desk, what do you do to take care of yourself in, in your downtime? What do you do to recharge your batteries? Well, my wife and I are the keeper of a clouder of cats. So we have three furry little beasts that are basically our family. Uh, I love to dote on my beasts. Um, if I'm looking for something to do that's just enjoyable, I, uh, I like to collect movies. I'm a big sort of movie buff. And if I find a movie I really love, I will go to the trouble of buying it in 4K Ultra HD or whatever best format I can get. I've built a pretty nice home entertainment system, uh, at least as good as I can get it within the confines of a New York City apartment uh, with Dolby Atmos sound and a nice big 4K screen. And so uh, I love to just kick back. I love to watch movies and experience stories. Uh, I also just, as from childhood on, I've always loved to read. So if there's nothing else, there's always other authors' books. I'm a big fan of uh, F. Paul Wilson, uh, his Repairman Jack books. Uh, I'm a big fan of my friend James Swallow. His Mark Dane thrillers are some of the best thrillers out there, bar none. I mean, we're talking Bourne material. You know, Jason Bourne, move out of the way. Get, here comes Mark Dane. Uh, clear, clear out of the way, sir. Um, you know, I mean, I like, uh, you know, Richard Cadry's Sandman Slim books are some of the best contemporary urban uh, fantasy adventure there is. So I, I love his stuff. Um and then there's books like uh, Spear by Nicola Griffith. Uh, what amazing prose. Just such a gorgeous book. She takes Arthurian legend, uh, of, like the Grail Quest, reimagines it by saying, what if Percival, Sir Percival, what if Sir Percival was 
uh, a woman. Uh, and then in addition to this conceit, she basically rethinks and reimagines the uh, Arthurian legend by bringing in elements of Celtic and Welsh culture, language, and mythology. She factors, oh. in, she factors in the fact that uh, the Roman colonization of Britain occurred around the same period of time. So she factors in the effects of uh, Roman occupation in the British Isles. And most important, uh, she is able to incorporate characters who have disability or queerness or neurodivergence of some kind. And she shows how they would have continued to be functional members uh, of society and even heroic figures, uh, you know, who, who basically are not impeded uh, by their difference. They simply find a way to exist and their difference just becomes part of who they are. So it's a great look. Uh, it challenges our notions of what a person had to be to be heroic in that era. And also just what that era was and what it looked like and uh, what the level of cultural intermingling was. So it's just, it's a remarkable book in terms of the scope uh, of its vision of that uh, setting and that time period and the cultures and the way they all sort of interweave and affect one another. And the prose, the, just the beauty of the language with which she does it is stunning. It is just, it, it's humbling to read something that beautiful and think, you know, I will never write anything this beautiful, <laughs> ever. Uh, I mean, I write stories that I think are effective and I try to do them in, you know, my style, which is a relatively invisible, I hope, uh, you know, form of prose that allows the story to come through without overweighting the prose. But if, you know, if I were aiming for gorgeous prose, uh, I would wish to be touched by the same magic that touched Nicola Griffith. I mean, the the exclamation before, because I'm 99% sure my wife has read uh, some of her work mm -hmm. and just raves about how fantastic it is. It's so I, I trust you that it is very good. Adding As, her books to my TBR. There we go. My TBR that is 900 pages long. <laughs> yep, that's the <laughs> hardest part. Yeah. So Life before, is, oh, is so short, but book lists are so long. I know. And then every time I read a book and I read a series and then somebody's like, oh, hey, you liked that series. Here's three others. You mentioned a whole bunch of authors and some of the books that you absolutely love. Uh, and one of the things we'd like to ask is kind of like potential origins and futures of who or what were some of the inspirations that got you into writing and what would be some advice that you would give for aspiring authors? Let's see. Authors whose work inspired me in my youth. Uh, my love of science fiction in literature was fueled by the work of Ray Bradbury, I think, more than just about anybody else. I mean, I read a lot of the sort of classic authors of that period of science fiction, uh, people like Asimov, Heinlein, Clark, Blish, um, you know, but uh, it was really Bradbury who was my go-to, who's vision and whose style of writing really captured my imagination and made me love science fiction. But the author whose just pure poetry of language really made me aspire to put words on a page 
which I'd always wanted to do. I'd always wanted to be a writer, but the one who really sort of, you know, whose work really spoke to me and still does was Richard Browdigan. He was one of the last of the beat authors of the 60s and 70s. Never made a lot of money, uh, died poor, nearly bankrupt, uh, committed suicide. But uh, he wrote all these really beautiful books during his time. He also wrote volumes of poetry, uh, some of which I have. But I have a whole bunch of his books, some of them in first editions that I've found during my travels. Um, I have at least one copy of every one of his novels. And I've hmm. got copies of most of his volumes of poetry, at least most of the ones you can find. Uh, he had a gift for personifying uh, and anthropomorphizing inanimate objects and forces. Um, he had a beautiful way with descriptive language. He also had a sense of how to tell very deeply human and emotional stories, even though they were couched in surrealist settings or imagery or even magical realism to a degree. Um, and I really just loved so much of his work. In particular, one of his novels is called In Watermelon Sugar. And to give you an idea of the kind of you know, world that he would concoct. In the story of In Watermelon Sugar, the primary narrator is a character who is described as not having a regular name. He says, I am one of those people who doesn't have a regular name. And there's a whole chapter devoted to this concept where he gives examples like, you know, that feeling when you're thinking about a friend and then suddenly the phone rings and it's your friend calling you. That's my name. Or you're eating something and it's really good. And for a moment, you forget what it is that you're eating, but you still know that it's good. That is my name. And so on. And he goes through all these sort of different sort of experiences. And you realize that, you know, he's telling you associate these feelings and emotions with this concept of character. And in that fictional universe, the sun shines a different color based on the day of the week. So each day of the week, the sun is a different color. And watermelon seeds that are planted, uh, you know, on those days uh, will yield watermelons of that color. And watermelons of different colors have different magical properties. And then he's got all these sort of weird characters who have weird relationships between the main character and a girl named Margaret who he doesn't really love. And then another girl who he does really love. And there's that sort of weird triangle going on, push and pull. And then there's this gang of weird guys who are led by a villain named Inboil, and they live out at the Forgotten Works in a place called I-Death, which is lowercase I, capital death. Um, this was before the era of Apple, so I'm not sure what this is all about. This is essentially, you know, the weirdness, and there's something all about, you know, in ancient times there were the tigers and this and that and the other thing, and there were artifacts and things left over from the Forgotten Works in the before time, and there's the watermelons and all these sort of kooky side characters. It's the strangest book, but I love it. I absolutely love it. And I would, it's funny, I, I would never write that way. It's not in any respect anything like anything I would ever write, but it's what I love. Just your description of the book sent me through like five different mental whiplashes. So yeah. what was the name of this book again? Watermelon Sugar? or In? in Watermelon mm -hmm. Sugar. In Watermelon Sugar. I, I'm Rocky writing this down. By Richard Browdigan. B-R-A-U-T-I-G-A-N. Oh, here it is. There you go. Uh, I need to I need to read this book. Yes, oh, my do. God. It's a beautiful it's... book. 
it's beautiful. It's sometimes funny. It's sometimes weird. Uh, and it's sometimes it's also profoundly sad. Uh, and it's an, a great example of the emotional range that Browdigan could bring to his work, uh, and as well as the surrealism and the beauty. That sounds really cool. I will also be adding that to my ever-growing TBR. And poor TBR. It's also a very short book. You can read through it really quick. It's, it's, oh, there it's, you go. It's a skinny little book. Good. So, David, we had told you we'd keep you about an hour, and we are already past that. But we have That's one more question for you. We have one more because we decided as a group that when you grow up, people just don't ask you cool questions anymore. When you're a kid, it's the, hey, can your tennis shoes make you run faster? And so <laughs> there, was, there was one question in particular that we realized we were really sad we didn't get asked anymore. So, David Mack, what is your favorite dinosaur? I knew that was coming. It's a good question, though. I, I felt it, though. I mean, when I was a kid, I was sort of torn. I was like a Triceratops guy or a Stegosaurus guy. Everybody else, mm. you know, they, they were all about the T-Rex, but I'm like, eh, that seems like it's too easy. It's too pat. What I loved was the just the the design. And what, you've got the Triceratops. It's about like those cool forward horns and that gigantic sort of, you know, that the, the big sort of, you know, thing behind its head. That's awesome. But the Stegosaurus with that, tail with you know the the thagomizer of spikes at the mm -hmm. end uh, how do you choose between that i mean stegosaurus also has like the cool fins on the back it's very godzilla it's very proto godzilla so mm -hmm. i mean i don't know i mean it's hard to pick between triceratops and stegosaurus man the, those two they're, they're both really really awesome beasts i guess I guess just for visual impact, I'd have to go Triceratops. That's mm. a solid answer. Mm. And solid reasoning behind that answer. That's just, We've had people who have done a dramatic creature, you know? Oh, yeah. But you can imagine riding on the back and you get that giant thing as a forward shield and you can peek out oh, yeah. behind it and duck, you know? So it's a yeah. great sort of a dinosaur steed. Whereas if you're trying to ride a Stegosaurus, you're riding on these rough fins. First of all, that's crotch injury right there, plus no shield. <laughs> So right, I'm going to go Triceratops for that other you reason. Use a Triceratops as a mount. I mean, yeah, the crest That's will be. You put a howdah on the back. You put a howdah on there, and then you can duck behind its frill. And it's got horns. You can charge into battle with it, and it'll protect you from incoming fire. It's great. I might need to change my D and D character's mount. <laughs> I might have I, to have them. I might have to see if my GM will write dinosaurs into it. If you give the Triceratops armor barding like he gives to a horse. You can bard the frill to protect your ear mount, you know, so that it can take incoming fire without your ear mount getting hurt. And that shield becomes even more effective. See, that's awesome. I think I you would really enjoy the video game called Ark, where okay. the whole thing is basically you build a little little fort and then you capture dinosaurs. Okay. And one of the things you can do is get a Triceratops to ride. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Thank you. Somebody thought about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, awesome. boy. I love it. That is great. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very interesting answer. I don't think anyone's ever gone that in-depth with that question before. No. Well, no. I mean, it's important to engage with these things seriously. You know? I mean, yeah. you gotta really think, if you're going to stick with an answer, you got to know why you're sticking with the answer. 
And I mean, we've had people say that the T-Rex was their favorite and then refer to them as the pumpkin spice of dinosaurs. And I'm like, no, 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 it's the unchallenged of dinosaurs. It's the dinosaur that can't get to the remote control. (laughs) Just the the joke from Meet the Robinsons of I got a big head and little arms. There's an interesting thing about the Stegosaurus of why it's called the Thogomizer. Yeah, it's because of the cartoon. The thing that kills Thag is called the Thagomizer, and then real dinosaur scientists realized they didn't have a better name for it, so they picked it up and said, Thagomizer it is. I I love that you know that. So many people don't know that, and I just, I find it hilarious that actual scientists went, I mean, we don't have a thing for that. Sure. Thagomizer. Done. Yeah. That's as good as anything. We'll take it. It's so great. Oh, man. Oh, David, we have enjoyed having you on the the show so much with us today. It's been fun. I'm just sorry Tim had to miss it. But I'm glad for the reason, but I'm glad for the reason that he did. That's true. That's true. Where can our viewers and our listeners go to find out more about you and your work and your upcoming book? Well, aside from your local bar or watering hole, uh, let's say uh, my official website, davidmack.pro. That's David Mack, M-A-C-K, dot P-R-O. And if you want to find me on social media, on Facebook, my official author page is facebook.com slash the David Mack. And I don't really use my Twitter account anymore because Elon Musk is kind of a fascist dipshit. Pardon my mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. Understandable. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I mostly use Blue Sky uh, for my micro posting these days. And I am David Mack, D A V I D M A C K, all one word, lowercase, on Blue Sky. And you can find me over there. Uh, and I'm pretty easy to find. You put in David Mack and or Star Trek and I hop right up. Awesome. Well, we are definitely going to link your website as well as your socials so that our viewers and our listeners can go and find out what you've got coming up. Much appreciated. Remember, folks, subscribing is the most important thing you could do uh, to ensure you get more amazing guests like Dave and Mac here uh, and funny moments that you can listen to. So really helps out the channel. Please subscribe, uh, like and comment below as well. Check out our Patreon and don't forget to check us out on Good Pods or any of your other audio podcast providers. And don't forget to check out David's work and find his his latest book, Firewall, coming to stores near you. You said February 27th? 27th. Tuesday, the 27th of February, 2024. Awesome. Well, thanks again, David. We have seriously, this has been an amazing conversation. I've had a blast. It's been a lot of fun being here. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. All right, guys. And for the FSF podcast, that's it. Goodbye. Bye. Copyright 2024 FSF podcast. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned on this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by FSF podcast. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at info at fsfpopcast.com.